Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the May 2016 podcast. This month, we're going to go into lenses, filters, and cameras, and uh, really excited about the questions that I have, and uh, let's get to it. Hi, Shane. I recently got a chance to test out some Cook anamorphic lenses in a rental house. Wow. Before I convince my producer to rent them, is there anything I should be wary of when shooting anamorphic? Thanks, Sloan. Well, this is a good question because I'm now in Prague and um, I'm shooting The Adventures, which is this uh, action kind of heist film. And originally, when the director and I first met conceptually, and I went out on uh, Tech Scout um, about three months ago, kind of an initial location scout, let's say, uh, we talked about anamorphic. And uh, he really wanted that feel for this movie. So we went back and we started to do to do the numbers uh, from a budget standpoint. Uh, we're going to have uh, a first unit and a second unit. We're also going to have a splinter unit. And, you know, having these lenses and, uh, okay, which ones? Which ones uh, enable us to create our creation? Anamorphic lenses are, are very heavy. So, um, and cooks are you know, right on the tipping point. And we found that the selection of what Cook was offering was not going to be able to fit all of our lens focal length requirements. So then we look to the Hawk Anamorphics, which they have a very light version that would work with the Movi. But then it's like now we get into how much it's going to cost to rent these anamorphics. I need three sets. I need two sets for main unit and one set for second unit. So now the price starts to go up exponentially. And the other thing you find with the anamorphics is this. You obviously have, um, you know, very challenging types of depth of field as well, right? So <clears throat> shooting these lenses at a two or even a one five, some of them are, uh, you know, you're, you're definitely not uh, setting yourself up for a, a recipe for success. Um, 
it's going to require your focus puller to uh, be really on top of it. And uh, the odds are that there's going to be a lot of out of focus close ups uh, when you're working in that type of range. With spherical, you can light to a two. And like I do with like the Cooks and the Panavision Primos and uh, focus pullers don't have a problem. They're used to being in that range. But a two on an anamorphic is much more extreme and it's like shooting a one on a spherical. So now you have to light more and you need this requires more lighting. Uh, it requires uh, more uh, setup time, and now your budget starts to go up as well. So these are the kind of considerations that we talked about with uh, Director Stephen Fung on this project. And I was like, okay, well, my lighting is going to have to go up. The time that it takes me to light is going to have to go up, and the camera package uh, with anamorphics is going to have to go up. And for our budget and where we needed to be, that was not going to fit into the budgetary box. So we opted for Cook Sphericals, the S4s. Uh, I could get three sets, no problem, uh, all with like wide range of, um, of focal lengths, you know, we're going to be dealing with being inside cars and uh, the limitations of what a car is and uh, the ability to put the lens where we want it is going to re be restricted by the physicality of the device that we're in or the vehicle that we're in. And I found this out with Need for Speed as well. It's like you need an amazing amount of focal lengths when you're dealing with these limitations. And limitations in regards to just the physicality of where you want to put the camera without ripping the door off and creating this whole kind of rig or ripping the roof off or whatever that might be that you see done on, you know, huge 80, 90, 200 million dollar movies where they're able to do all this in a green screen environment and they can put the camera and that specific lens focal length wherever they want. But we don't have that ability and we don't have that budget. So we're going down the road of, okay, I'm going to need on the cook side, I'm going to need a 14. I'm going to need an 18. I'm going to need a 21. I'm going to need a 25. I'm going to need a 27. I'm going to need a 32. I'm going to need a 40, a 50, a 65, a 75, a 100, a 135, and a 180. There's not one set on the planet that gives you that amount of focal lengths in regards to anamorphic. The Hawks have a very good range, but not that good. So it all, you know, in the story and the budget always points you in the right direction. Uh, you know, sometimes the story takes you on a journey and the budget kind of bends that journey to another, uh, direction. And this is what we found uh, with the adventurers. Uh, we had to bend our vision to fit in the budgetary box. And that was going with spherical instead of anamorphic. 
And I, you know, I love the look and feel of anamorphic. I'm using uh, to kind of, you know, get into the filter vein. I'm using a Vantage filter uh, that they make that's the blue streak. And that gives you a beautiful anamorphic flare that will just blow your mind. It does like this. It uses double glass where when the headlights or whatever light is flaring the lens and hits the lens, it does the beautiful C and E anamorphic flare that we all know from like the Panavision uh, days. Uh, so that's something that uh, I'm renting for the movie. So when we have like our tram headlights at night and the street lights and the, the headlights from cars, I'm going to get that blue classic anamorphic flare based on this Vantage filter. And you can look it up on their website. Uh, to me, these guys, they also make the Hawk Anamorphics. They are doing the best types of anamorphic flaring and effects filters and everything that they're doing in that side of the realm to match and mimic anamorphic are pretty extraordinary. So uh, you should check those guys out. So let's just recap that question for a second. So you said, before I convince my producer to rent them, is there anything I should be wary of? So being wary of is it's going to take more time, more money to light. It's going to be more expensive to rent. And you're going to be limited with the type and the specific range of focal lengths that you can get. Uh, whether it's Cook, whether it's Airy, whether it's, you know, any of the specific players out there. Again, Hawk Anamorphics has the largest line of focal lengths, but, um, you know, you're going to be limited definitely with, with the Cooks. All right. Great question, Sloan. All right. On to number two. What do you recommend investing in first, glass or cameras? I've been a DSLR. I've been DSLR filmmaking for a while, but find the low dynamic range and compression to be a nightmare in post. At the same time, it's obvious that a good amount of money needs to be invested in fast glass for sharp images with minimal chromatic aberrations and good depth of field. As a low budget indie filmmaker, what should I invest in first? Okay, this is across the board what you invest in. Glass, 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 glass. Cameras are, are going to come and go. Jesus, they change every three months, especially if you're dealing with the Sony line. They invent a camera and they invent another camera to eliminate the camera they just invented three months ago. So these are the kind of things that you're going to be dealing with on a three to six months basis. So glass is timeless, especially if it's really good glass. And I have kind of made it my mission to collect really good glass that really makes and delivers your creative vision. I took the Leica R's that were kind of a, 
you know, something left from the 70s uh, that not many people were really interested in, but I knew like a glass and I knew how good it was. So I just started buying them, a lot of them from, you know, the 15 millimeter all the way up to like a 180 prime and created my own series, serious range of focal lengths that I had cine modded at, uh, at Duclos, had the rings made, had the uh, 77 mil adapter to 80 millimeter adapters put on all the lens fronts. And this really started to uh, expand uh, my creative scope in regards to the DSLR world. Because now you are putting uh, an incredible, uh, like an older piece of glass onto a format that tends to be very hyper crisp sometimes. Uh, I actually find, found with the Leica glass, I got about a half stop more latitude out of the sensor. Now, how does glass do that? Well, all types of glass has all different types of coating. And with this coating, it increases your contrast and, and uh, things, you know, to make them sharper. Zeiss is a perfect example of a lens that's not that sharp, but uses contrast and, and coatings on the glass to make it look sharp, even though that it isn't. So it's using a contrast ratio to be able to make that glass look sharper than it actually is. With the Leica, the Leica is a more lower contrast glass, but still sharp. So because it's lower contrast, you're going to pick up more detail in the shadows as well as it's going to hold the highlights a little better. And now all of a sudden your DSLR that uh, had nine and a half stops of latitude and now has 10 and you're able to hold the sky because you're able to close down on your camera to hold the sky because now it's going to see another half stop into the blacks and you're going to be able to dig that out in post. Now, yes, DSLRs are limiting in regards to the compression and, uh, you know, the, uh, the low dynamic range, but let's think about it. I shot active valor with the nine and a half stops, 10 stop ratio, uh, and blasted it on a 60 foot screen. And that was all 80% of it was shot on a Canon 5d Mark two, not a Mark three, but a Mark two. So this, if you get it in the right sweet spot and you understand ratios and your exposure, there's nothing that uh, you cannot do with a DSLR. Um, I have, you know, would I be shooting adventures with a DSLR? No, because DSLRs are quirky. They're not, uh, I did active valor with a DSLR because that's the only camera that I could use to really shoot it. You know, the Navy's ultimatum was, okay, you can have six to 10 people and that's it. Okay, so if I'm going to shoot a major action sequence where I have, you know, river boats being dumped out of Night Stalker helicopters and jamming down a, a river and then gunning uh, the bad guys with 50 cal and also uh, mini guns, I'm not going to be using a Panavision camera uh, because it's it's limiting, right, for this kind of style. I have to have... 16 or 18 DSLR cameras that I can hand one to the producer, one to the grip, three to the ACs, two to the directors, one to myself, and we have to shoot the action sequence. 
And that's really what it came down to. And that's why I chose the DSLR uh, format for that movie because the requirements of the Navy and the requirements of our vision, uh, you know, kind of put us into that box. And I was so happy that we did because it really made the movie look unique and feel unique and kind of a style that you really hadn't seen before. So it all worked out beautifully. Now, Getting back to the glass scenario. So the old Nikons, AI and AIS are great glass. Um, you know, I find that a lot of the older glass has, you know, more of the characteristics that I really respond to. Um, you know, a lot of the newer glass is being, you know, made to be very flat and, uh, you know, non, it doesn't have dimension. It doesn't have the imperfections that a lot of the glass that was made by hand does. And, uh, a lot of now all this glass is manufactured by a computer and it's all buffed and everything and curved and all this stuff all with computer. And the whole made by hand element is kind of been uh vaporized so i'm uh you know in the glass vein that's where you want to put your money so let's recap this uh dslr's dynamic range yes it it doesn't have a, a lot of dynamic range but purchasing really good glass that might be lower contrast but still really sharp will give you more dynamic range and enable you to underexpose your talent to be able to hold skies and hot buildings or whatever is in your background. Uh, the DSLRs are quirky. Would I shoot this movie I'm on adventures right now with a DSLR? No. Uh, I'm going to shoot it with a movie camera with the red dragons and weapons. Uh, but there are styles of filmmaking and uh, and budgetary restraints that require the DSLR format and or, you know, cheaper versions of like the Blackmagic Ursa or these type of cameras to be able to tell your story. Those cameras are going to come and go, but the uh, glass is going to remain as a constant for generations to come. They're timeless. Glass is timeless and buying that right glass that can help tell your stories is what it's all about. All right. Question three. Shane, have you ever used Red Pro Primes? What is your take on these cine lenses? I know they're heavy and the markings are not great, but what about the optics? I never saw tests on your blog and online tests are very limited. There are some kits online that would be perfect for a small setup and they won't blow the bank. Awesome last month's podcast. Thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge, Ricardo. Hi, Ricardo. This is a great question. The Red Pro Primes are very heavy. And they are, the markings are not that great. And the optics are not that great either. Uh, basically, what they are is Sigma lenses rehoused. So Red took like uh, Sigma's glass, they uh, pulled all their lenses apart and basically rehoused them in these very heavy pieces of cinema glass. And I, I you know, it's like for... If I was shooting on, let's say, a red dragon or weapon or scarlet or raven or whatever, and you are in the EF 
amount range and you're not necessarily PL, well, I would go with Leica R's or the Nikons or, you know, even these, uh, you know, these, these type of older lenses that are going to make the dragon, uh, and the weapon look incredible. Um, I just, I really like, uh, the the older glass with all of this and uh it's pretty it's pretty uh amazing how well they all still hold up i mean i it's a perfect example like i shot we are marshall semi-pro greatest game ever played something new yeah on the old Zeiss Ultra Primes. And these are the lenses back with Stanley, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, you know, these, these lenses have been around since the late fifties, early sixties. And, um, I had these Ultra Primes, which, you know, you can shoot. Some of them are like a one, one, a one, two, a one, four, a one, five. I like to shoot in a two to two and a half range, because when you go way wide open like that, the lens starts to fall apart, which is a good thing around a two. It falls apart beautifully, but it doesn't. And when I mean falls apart, the lens starts to not work as well as it should if you shot it at a four. And I like when it falls apart because the contrast falls apart a little and the focus falls apart in regards to very, you know, the, the focus is, is hyper sharp in that specific area and then it falls off beautifully. Um, and the, the focal is inconsistent, uh, when you start to go, uh, closer to the wider open, uh, T stops and F stops. So this is kind of where, I really like it is, is taking that lens and taking it all the way down to right on the edge of its breaking point. Uh, the, the one, one and the one, two, the, the lens really falls apart and it's could be really cool for a specific look, but it wasn't cool for what I wanted to do on these movies. But just getting to the point of what I'm trying to talk about here is that this is this old glass that now everyone is responding to. So these, this piece of glass rented for $15 a day. So each lens was $15. It was so inexpensive on all these movies I did. Everyone was like, Shane, why are you going with this glass? You've done like five movies with it. And I, I can, I had my personal sets at Panavision Hollywood where it was Shane's, you know, set. And it had all of them. I, Cause I went through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, lenses to find that perfect set of lenses that were more matched. So like you could never use the 40. The 40 was the most yellow piece of glass that I'd ever seen and very hard to get rid of the yellow once it was baked in. So a, a 40 that I absolutely love is a focal length I couldn't use. I had to use a 35 or a 50. And then they had this really cool 
focal length called the 55. We called it the double nickel or the jacked up 50 because it was just at five more millimeters for that, you know, kind of close up. So, uh, but you know, you had 29s and 20 millimeters and uh, a lot of weird focal lengths that you usually don't get. And, you know, Kubrick loved the 29 millimeter. He loved the feel of that as well as the 20. Uh, so I really, you know, love these lenses. So getting back to my point, so they, they, um, they took these lenses and now with the invent, you know, with digital exploding and everything and film kind of being pushed down, now they're called classics. And, uh, they now rent for 125 a lens per day instead of the $15 a lens. And, uh, it is the new wave, uh, is taking old glass that has the imperfections that has been made by hand and, uh, kind of taking the edge off of the digital sensor and the, the digital landscape. All right. Now we're going into camera. Hi, Shane. A million thanks for being such an inspiration and being so generous with all of your amazing information about cinematography you share. You truly are a cinematography hero. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that, uh, those kind words. I've been making films since childhood and always wanted to be a director, but more recently I've found my true passion is with camera and cinematography. I've been trying to catch up on years of knowledge and learning as much as I can, as fast as I can. Thank you for helping me on this journey with all your posts and podcasts. I have recently made my first feature film, a no-budget horror film, which I co-directed and was the cinematography and camera operator. It was a great time, and I've learned so much from the experience that I will use on my next film. There's one problem, however. I thought you might be able to help me understand. I shot the film on a Canon 5D Mark III with the Technicolor Cine Style profile. I'm very pleased with the camera. The film looks great, but on quite a lot of shots, daytime exteriors, there seems to be a real lack of definition in the sky, almost as if it is burned out. The characters seem correctly exposed, but backgrounds look horrible. A good example is with trees in the background. There is no detail, just a jagged shape. And often the outline of people and hair in particular looks like it's been cut out from the background. I thought the idea of shooting flat was to get more latitude and have definition in both dark and light areas of the frame, but my light areas are all washed out. Can you explain where I've gone wrong here? It's an issue with cine style. Is it an issue with cine style? Sorry. Have I exposed it incorrectly? This footage is ungraded yet, but I don't think it's fixable in grading or is it? Can you give me any help or advice so that I don't come across this issue in the future shoots? I love how cine style looks, but I don't think I will be using it again if it looks this way. I think I would prefer to create the look in camera instead of in post. What would you suggest here? Many thanks. Russ Gome in the UK. All right, Russ. Cine style is a very flat log file, basically. I mean, that's what we're kind of creating here, right? So, um, and it's very difficult to expose. And the only way that I've found to really expose 
you know, the Technicolor Cine style is by putting it through an onboard monitor that can infuse a Rec. 709 lookup table or some type of lookup table that you have made for this Cine style. And the reason being is I find that I either overexpose or underexpose Cine style all the time because I want contrast. So if I want contrast, the only way to take that flat file and make it contrasty is to underexpose it. And this should have worked out very well for you with dealing with these day exteriors, but maybe, you know, it didn't because that's the whole thing with the DSLR format. You have about nine and a half stops of latitude. So, and the latitude is skewed. You have seven in the under and like two and a half or three in the over, right? Or maybe six in the under, you know, it's, it's skewed. You have much more under than you have over. So what you want to do is when you have that hot sky, you want to underexpose the crap out of it. So you hold the detail in the sky and then you can go in post and you can bring out that detail in the shadow. And I find so many times I, feel like I'm not seeing the people in the foreground. And I'm like, oh, God, this is there anything left in there? Well, there always is. And you have to be a little more ballsy with your exposures and just go there knowing that uh, you can bring it back in post. And again, shooting a movie and going down this road, you want to try and do very simple tests. Uh, if you know you're going to be having a lot of day exteriors, then shoot just a little test with the cine style and, you know, have your hot sky and your, you know, white puffy clouds and, and you, those things are burning out and you want to hold that detail. So you, um, you stop down and then the people are look like they're silhouette, but, you know, shoot it like that and then take it and put it into DaVinci and uh, see if you can bring their faces back and that it looks really good. And these are the small little tests that you can do that are going to make you feel much more comfortable as a cinematographer and be able to jump off the cliff, right? So you're jumping off the cliff with a wingsuit and you're going to pop your chute and land successfully without killing yourself. So these are the kind of things, these small little tests that you want to do to give you more confidence with the DSLR, DSLR format because it is limiting. But once you really understand it, and and I find that everyone talks about exposing, you know, uh, like when you expose a red, I overexpose it. When you expose a Canon, uh, you know, C500, C300, I'm uh, overexposing it. When you expose a DSLR, you are underexposing it. Um, so it's like the, the method, the methodology changes across the board because DSLR is limiting and you need to underexpose it, uh, much more than you would overexpose it. So these are just the kind of quirks. Cine style is a, it's a good idea. Uh, but what I found, um, when I was shooting Act of Valor, it came out kind of midstream and we did some tests on it. And what I found is once I got into the color correction bay, 
Cine style, yes, gave me more latitude, but the color felt like I lost the the vitality uh, of the image. It felt like it just didn't have any bit rate behind it. Like the colors just didn't feel alive and they didn't feel like they had any depth. It felt like they were just, you scratch the surface and you would scratch the color and it would be no color. Where with shooting like with the neutral and uh, with just a little lower contrast, uh, you would scratch the surface and there would be color depth beneath it. And these are the things that I found with shooting cine style that it kind of takes your color space. And I mean, you're already dealing with an eight bit color space in the uh, DSLR. Uh, I felt it took it to a six or a four bit color space in regards to its vitality and what skin tones look like and the depth of color beneath the image. All right, let's go to the next question. Dear Shane, I love your teaching style. And even old dog like me, 23 years of shooting reality and docs can learn from your no-nonsense approach. Thank you so much. Regarding L-Series Canons, in previous podcasts, you've stated that L-Series is not good enough, and I agree. But one question nags me. If these lenses are good enough to resolve still pictures at resolutions of, say, 5184 times 3456, that's a DX max size, why not for moving pictures? And I dare say 4K. P.S. If I could only buy four primes, what focal lengths would you choose? Thanks, Mark in Winnipeg. All right, Mark, this is a great question. Okay, so I'm going to start with a an example so you can kind of understand the resolution kind of thing. On a 70 millimeter print, the glass that Panavision made was crappy. Now, why? The glass Panavision made for 35 millimeter was exquisite and perfect and sharp. Okay. This is what this whole answer to the question is all about. Panavision didn't need to make a 70 millimeter piece of glass that was exceptional because they used the image size of the 70 millimeter film to give it its sharpness, contrast, and crispness. The same reigns true with your DX Max size sensor and the L series glass. Because the size of that format is so massive and your bit space is 16 bit compared to what the 8-bit DSLR is, that you're having. Here's a perfect example. If I can make two shades of brown with 8-bit, then it goes to 10-bit. Now I can make four shades of brown. Then I can go to 12-bit. Now I can make eight shades of brown. I go to 16-bit, and now I can make 16 shades of brown. So 
not only are you gaining a bit space that is exponentially increased with shooting uh, with the with DSLR compared to shooting a still, then you're gaining the aspect of that DX max size sensor that now is cap- capturing all the sharpness, all the vitality. You're using the sensor size to create your sharpness, contrast, and snap. And that's the same exact way with 70 millimeter lenses. 35 millimeter lenses have to go through so much more quality controls and so much more sharpening and, and uh, specifics and everything. It's, it's incredible, the, the whole thought process behind it all. All right, so there's the answer to that question. I think that's the, the the most complete, concise, and simplest question I've ever, you know, I'm starting to get better at just like honing in. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, so, all right, now you asked your second question was by four primes, what would the focal lengths be? All right, well, you're going to want a, a wide lens, you're going to want a medium and you're going to want a close-up lens. So, you know, my favorite focal lengths, if I'm shooting, you know, cinema is the 21 millimeter and uh, then it's the 32 millimeter and then it's the 50 and the 75 or the 50 and the 100. So anywhere in that realm, I mean, obviously with cinema glass, you can be more in the 21 and the 32s and the 50s and the 75 and hundreds. When you're looking for still glass, they have more 14. I mean, they have some 18s. 21, you can find some still glass on, um, you know, Leica makes a 21, uh, Zeiss makes a 21, uh, which is our, their great lenses. Um, in the 32 range, there's some 29s, uh, still glass wise. I've really never seen a 32. There's the 35, obviously. Uh, so you can go to a 35, which is three millimeters, but it's a big difference. Uh, I tend to never use a 35. I use a 32 and a 40. Um, so, you know, those are going to be your kind of uh, range that I would say somewhere in the 21 range, somewhere in the 32 range, 50 for sure. That lens is by far uh, the best lens uh, across the board. It can do so many things. And then a close-up lens, whether you want to go 75, 100, 85, or 100, somewhere in there. I'd say jump to 100. Okay? All right. Next question. Hey, Shane, I've noticed that you hardly mention Airy Alexa products. With so many discerning DPs using the Alexa as their weapon of choice, why have you chosen to do otherwise? Thanks. That's a great question. Why don't I shoot with the Aria Alexa? I do. I shoot, uh, I've shot often with the Aria Alexa. I, um, I guess it really comes down to the, you got to go back four or five years or three years, I guess, or whenever the invention of the movie, this was a device. And let's say, let's go back to the invention of a camera that did not weigh 4,000 pounds and wasn't 70 feet long. That's the area Alexa. 
Okay. Uh, the area Alexa to me is going backwards. Now, there's so many director of photographies that use this camera and love this camera because it was just like a film camera. The film camera had a big magazine. Uh, it had all the uh, inner workings of a camera that was very large and very, uh, you know, you could not put it in small places. Well, I did Active Valor, and after Active Valor, it kind of changed my whole way of working. It went from having two or three cameras to having 20 or 30 cameras. It went from a small uh, footprint. It went from a large footprint of how we made paint my wagon and gone with the wind. And, you know, we basically created that camera, but in a digital space being the area Alexa, 17 inches long and, um, you know, very heavy to, um, you know, a DSLR that was very small and very compact and you could put it in very small places and it was expendable and you could blow it up. You could shoot it. You could throw it. You could do all these specific things. And then there came the, the Canon, uh, C300, C500 line, which was even lighter than, uh, and, you know, then, well, about the same weight of, uh, you know, a DSLR, like a 1DC. I mean, the, the, these things are just like half a pound difference. Now, compared to the Alexa, it was 10 pounds lighter or 12 pounds lighter than the Alexa. And it was 10 inches to 12 inches shorter. So now I'm doing uh, uh, an action picture with car crashes and I have to embed these cameras in cars and, uh, you know, put them all over the vehicle and get very intimate with the actors and do it in a way that they're in the action and they're driving and not on green screen, like Fast and the Furious, where, you know, Vin Diesel is reacting to green screen and he's looking and all this kind of stuff. We're actually, you know, they're physically driving down the road. So I needed a camera that was very small, very compact, could fit into these supercars and deliver that vision that uh, Scotty Waugh, the director, wanted. So you can see how I'm being forced, right? I'm, I'm taking the Alexa that's way too big, way too heavy, way too long, uh, and only shoots, you know, a kind of version of 2K. And now I'm expanding that with a, a, a platform that's much more smaller, much higher resolution, all these type of things. So then the movie came out and the movie started, that really flipped me again, just like the DSLR kind of changed the way I shot and how many cameras I used and how efficient it was to use a lot of cameras and all these different configuration, like guns on a table. Then it went into the whole thing of now I have a uh, motion device that can move the camera in ways a steady cam could never, uh, can start to move like a dolly, move like a being on a slider. All of a sudden you're over the shoulders and the way you shoot now is completely flipped on itself. Well, the area Alexa had no, uh, way it could be mounted on a movie. And then there was the uh, Airy M, which then required the whole, uh, 18 inch 
uh, brain of the Alexa that you had to strap to your back or put it somewhere in a backpack. And then you had the cord that went into the camera. These are very limiting in regards to being with the movie. Now the Alexa M has come out and that is an incredible camera and it gives you the ability to use it on the gimbal. You know, Alexa and Ari are seeing how powerful the gimbal is. So they built a camera specifically for that gimbal. But the Alexa will continue, will, will vaporize very quickly because now we've given all these discerning director photographies that you talk about the ability to actually have a camera in a very small box like I've been using for the last five to six years. Let's see, 2009, seven years. So what I've kind of been doing and kind of, you know, tip of the spear kind of stuff now is going to be given to everyone. Uh, and that's why I've really embraced the dragon and the weapon is, again, it's a very, very small box that fits on everything. And you can fly it on the movie and you can rig it in places that you can't fit an Alexa and all these type of things. And you're seeing in the rental houses, the Alexas are going away and the uh, minis are now becoming the studio camera. And this is the power of what I have been preaching for seven years is why do we go from a digital landscape where we can have devices that are very small and very intimate and, uh, and so much more user-friendly? I mean, it's so great to be able to have a camera that's just a box and you can just do whatever you want. It's like a lens with a sensor attached to it is what, you know, it's all, my vision has always been that the, the whole, uh, inner workings of the camera and the fans and, and the, all that stuff is eventually going to downsize to the point where there's just this beautiful sensor that can have its own in heat sink and just a little programming thing that can be all done from your like smartphone. So you don't need to have all the physicality of buttons and all that stuff. It just talks to it wirelessly. This is the future. And this is where it's going to be headed. But that's why the Alexa has never been in my wheelhouse for over the last seven years. Uh, and uh, I do use the camera. I do love its sensor. I think it delivers amazing imagery. But I didn't want that amazing imagery at the cost of the story and the stories that I have been telling. All right. What are your thoughts on the new Red Raven? Will you be doing a camera test on it in the near future as it becomes available? Well, there's really no reason to test the Red Raven because I've already tested the Dragon. And the Raven is the Dragon. So imagine getting a camera for $10,000 that basically has a Dragon sensor that has 15 and a half stops of latitude. And I've done all the tests that uh, you can imagine on this sensor. It is, this is a slam dunk for a camera in this range. It uh, will give you so much more than the, um, than any camera system out there. It is proven. 
It has been battle-tested. Everything about this sensor is truly extraordinary. And they've put the standard OLPF in the Raven as well as in the Scarlet W. So you are just getting all these amazing uh, depth and dimension and color space um, with this Red Raven, with the Scarlet W. I mean, all these, you know, red products that are coming out now are just truly extraordinary. I mean, I'm just so amazed by the leaps and bounds that Red has made. It came started with a great idea as a camera. The camera itself was brilliant. The color space and the sensor was not. And now it's really become, instead of just the jack of all trades, it's become the master, I think, of capturing my vision. Because it has that latitude that I absolutely love. It has a color space that just feels very alive and really fits my style of cinematography. So I'm, that's my digital emulsion that I'm using right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, when another project, project comes up that has more of a, uh, let's say, uh, something that might be more, uh, in the period vein, you know, something, say I did greatest game ever played, some style in the 1800s or something like that. I would probably go to, you know, older style glass and, and probably shoot that with the Alexa. So it had, uh, you know, a little more desaturated look and, uh, the colors weren't so vibrant and alive. And, you know, you're letting the sensor start to do that for you because that's what the, the Alexa, you know, side by side with the, with the dragon, you know, it's like the dragon comes in and the colors are alive and they pop and they're there. And, you know, most of the time you're kind of turning them down a little bit with the Alexa. You got to take your contrast and you got to dump it in the toilet. Then you got to take your sharpness and you got to turn it up. And then you got to take your, um, saturation and crank the heck out of it because their, their log file is so flat. Uh, that, you know, it requires all these things to kind of uh, put it in the pocket. But Red Log Film, as the uh, as its raw file and everything, and where uh, its color space that it extrapolates out of the raw, Red Log Film is very much a, it has color dimension, it has uh, definition, it has some contrast, and then you're building on top of that, which was very much like the Canon uh you know, log had color, it had some contrast, it had some dimension. It just wasn't this flat file. So these, uh, this is where I am with that. So the Red Raven is a slam dunk and that price point, you cannot beat it. Okay. Shane, I'm addicted to your site. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. I mean, we have been doing, so much to make this content uh, so um, rich and inviting and of all skill levels. And I think my team and I are really hitting our stride. So I th thank you very much for those comments. It's remarkable the content that you have available here. I have a question about lens flares. 
Lens flares have become all the rage in recent years. I'm curious if major studios just set this up as a post-process or another step in the sweetening of the footage. It is obvious when a lens flare is naturally occurring in camera, but not as obvious when it is not. I think I remember correctly that the Star Trek, where they were used often, they added them in post quite a bit. Could you speak to lens flares and camera and how they're used and how you think natural lens flare shots can be done well? Thanks. Okay. This question um, is our final question. And I kind of want to dive into this a little bit. On Star Trek, Dan Mindel used these really cool flashlights, xenon-based flashlights, and also... Uh, 200 watt pocket pars and everything to actually create those lens flares in camera. So, you know, Dan is a, an amazing cinematographer, an incredible artist. And, um, so I'd say if you had to take that whole, you know, obviously the big lens flares that you see when you're in space and all that stuff are absolutely digitally created. But the ones that are in, you know, on the sets and, and while they're moving and the cameras panning around and all that stuff, that is Dan Mendel at his best. Uh, which is literally uh, standing with flashlights and pocket pars just outside the edge of frame while this whole thing is going on and creating these flares in camera. So um, I'd say 80% of them are done in camera. And this is the testament to his excellence. So, you know, I have to say that uh, lens flares in camera are absolutely incredible. And why is it the rage? Because it's a rage of, I, I, I have to say that I think where cinematography is going is something that's imperfect, that is not so quaffed and acts, you know, so manicured. It has a rawness and a richness and a reality. And that's where I see uh, cinematography really headed. I mean, look at Revenant, uh, you know, and look at, uh, children of men and the stuff that, uh, Manuel Lubinsky has been doing. It feels real. It feels like you're there. It feels like you're in the moment and experiencing it with the character as he is experiencing it. That's kind of what I tried to do with Act of Valor. It's like you felt like you were with these seals. You felt like you were experiencing their journey right on their shoulder. So this is a style of cinematography that lens flares uh, really lend itself to the imperfection to for, you know, for a person to move across the frame and then it flares out. So you really can't see him or detail or it blows out the image that's not so perfect. Um, there's these amazing old pieces of glass called Kawa. I think I have a blog post on it somewhere deep. K-O-W-A. They're Japanese lenses that uh, have the most incredible flares I've ever seen of any lens out there. They beat every lens. Uh, and th the reason they do is because it's they have very minimal optics. And their optics are so, I don't know what it is. It's just this just special sauce of these babies. They give you what I call the sun, sunny side up flare, where if you look at the sun, 
And there's a blog post that I did on this uh, as well. Uh, you go deep, you search uh, case uh, combines or, you know, going to the heartland or something like that in your search engine on the blog. And you'll find these case commercial that I did uh, where I'm uh, showing the the uh, case combine in action. And I shot 90% of this on the Kawas. And you see the sunny side up flare, which is you see the sun and then off of the flare, you get this beautiful saturated yellow circle like the yolk. And then on the edges, it has like this whitish haze that looks like the size of the egg white that would make uh, your sunny side up egg. And uh, these, uh, that post has got some, some, the, the article's got some really great stuff on that and, uh, and those specific lenses and how beautifully they flare. Now I've heard the Zeiss, Jenna's flare incredibly well. Also, uh, I haven't had uh, the ability to grab many of those. I did a shot a couple tests with them and then yeah, just availability and then cine modding them and changing them uh, to be able to work with the, the cannons and, and stuff was just too much for me. And I just never invested the time to go out and find it like I did with the Leicas, uh, which the Leicas flare beautifully as well. Uh, they don't flare as uniquely as the Kawas, but they, they give you a decent flare and they, uh, and, and, you know, it's just, I, I love the imperfection of it. And I think that's where, uh, why it's become the rage is because we're moving into a realm of cinematography that is much more uh, in the audience's experience and less about, okay, this is our movie and this is what you're supposed to experience. We want you in it as an audience member. We want you on the Navy SEAL's shoulder. We want you with Leonardo DiCaprio when he's riding the horse and falling off a cliff. These are the types I think cinematography is where the future is headed, and I think it's such an amazing future uh, with this style, and I think it's really uh, shaping the way we uh, experience movies, and I uh, am a huge proponent of it, and I have been trying to spearhead this approach very much so starting back in 2009 with the whole DSLR thing with Active Valor. It's like trying to flip this genre on itself and say, how can I be more embedded? How can I feel like uh, as an audience, I'm with them and I'm you know, moving with them and I'm experiencing it and I'm seeing it for the first time, just like they're seeing it for the first time. And this is the art of great storytelling and the art of great cinematography. All right. Well, that concludes our May 2016 podcast. And I thank all of you for being a part of the inner circle and know that uh, questions are absolutely necessary for me to reach out and touch all of you and help you intimately with your uh, 
your possible problems, uh, giving you as many solutions as I can, and advice of 25 years of experience of being in this business. So let's make sure you continue to ask these questions because the questions fuel all the podcasts and fuels uh, a lot of the learning with inside the inner circle. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20 and join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.